you and I have been talking about is that I think there's a lot less room for the Fed to hike rates. And what the Fed's really hoping for, to your point, is that the market, that the economy and the markets are going to do the work for the Fed so they don't have to hike as much. They're, they're wanting the stock market to come down. They want the housing market to come down. They want the economy to slow down, which will quell inflation. So they're okay with letting that happen for now because it's all been pretty controlled up to this point. When it gets uncontrolled, that's going to be where they really run into a problem. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart here, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap after a emotional roller coaster of a week. Lance Roberts is here with me as always. Lance, great to see you, buddy. Good, good. I don't know if you can see my background, but I'm actually this is one of those those Zoom backgrounds. I'm actually on the bridge right now, so I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I made I made that joke when you and I got on before yeah. we started recording, and uh, and look, I mean, I was I was I was all prepared. I uh, I had the scotch here for you. I had I had the <laughs> don't the, need the, it the glasses for us just to really like you know no get you decompressed. Yeah. Um, but you reminded me that we're basically up for the week, believe yeah. it or not. I think most people hearing that it's probably a shock. But when you look at where we started this week versus where we closed, we're actually up a little bit, aren't we? It is. And, and this is this is the important thing to really talk about. And again, we kind of let our emotions, um, you know, kind of drag us around a good bit. And, you know, and it's certainly look, uh, don't don't miss you know, don't mistake what I'm saying here. You know, markets are flirting with the lows. We you know we're sitting on really critical support. The market's been able to hold that so far. Um, things don't look great by any stretch of the imagination. But if you kind of looked at the markets over the last two days, you know, it, it seems like it's like, oh, my gosh, the wheels just came off the cart. Read the headlines. And oh, don't forget, we had a we had probably one of the best bottom tick indicators, which was yesterday. CNBC ran their markets in turmoil, you know, special on CNBC that pretty much always nails a bottom returns. Uh, Charlie Biello um, over at Compound Advisors did a chart of every time that CNBC runs their markets in turmoil. And that's almost Every time that's a market bottom, you have positive returns over the next period. So, you know, it, it, we got to just be careful. And I want to go back. Look, I've had tons of conversations with our clients. We've had, you know, just a, a lot of emails and phone calls. And look, you know, hey, I get it, right? There's so many bearish headwinds out there. You know, we've got the Fed hiking rates. You've got inflation. You've got the weak economic data to just print it in the first quarter. I mean, we can make a very bearish case of why this market's going to just keep going down and not ever turn around again. And, and that's certainly something worth considering. I'm not discounting any of those negative biases that are, or I should, sorry, not biases, that's, a, that's a, a wrong word. Those negative metrics that are, you know, fundamentally sitting behind the economy and the markets, not discounting those at all. But when you have a tremendous amount of negativity, and particularly when investors become extremely negative, and we have the most negative sentiment of investors, both professional and retail investors, at, at any point of a bear market low in history, going back to like the 1970s. So we just have a collision of things that suggest, you know, and this is the thing that, you know, it just is always important to consider. And I'm actually writing this in this weekend's newsletter 
So if you want to read it, you can go to realinvestmentadvice.com and subscribe and I'll email it to you on Saturday. But what I'm writing about right now is, you know, this idea that when you have a lot of negative sentiment, it doesn't mean that your fundamental outlook is wrong. It just means that the markets have a tendency to have pretty significant reflexive rallies. And that rally is going to start to lead CNBC from markets in turmoil to why the bear market is over. And it won't be. So you'll definitely want to use that rally to rebalance risk. And particularly if you're off sides right now under a lot of pressure, you know, I'm seeing a lot of portfolios that are coming in for review that, you know, they're 100 percent equities and they're stocks that, you know, are still kind of hanging over from the 2020, 2021 kind of meme stock phenomenon. You know, so use this rally to start clearing out of some of those positions you know, kind of we've used the gardening analogy before, you know, kind of prepping the soil for what's going to come next. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out perfectly okay. But generally, when you start to, to emotionally panic sell markets, that's generally exactly the wrong time you want to do it. All right. Great reminder. We've talked in previous videos here about our emotions, you know, yeah. for the retail investor, our, our own emotions are usually our, our biggest enemy uh, to our long-term investing success here. So good reminder here that as emotions are high here, you know, we're much more likely to be kind of driven by the, the lower part of our brainstem here <laughs> and not by our, our higher functioning. It's um, actually, but, it's actually, Adam, it's lower than that. And it's generally when it's all puckered up, that's when we, <laughs> when we start. So. You're out of the, you're out of the brain and way lower in the body. Exactly. Uh, great, great point. Um, well, look, I, 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 I do want to dig into this a little bit. I, yeah. I don't mean to make light of this because I think a lot of people watching this, I'll, I'll be kind and say we're nervous this week. Yeah. You know, I think some of them may have been much more so and under, for very understandable reasons. Yeah. Um, so real quick, uh, I'll toss out my theme for the week. You can you can put your own in as well. But mine is a whole lot of shaking going on. Mm. You know, we moved all over the place. But again, we, we pretty much ended where we began largely. Um, that said, um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, even though you just sort of stated what you, you know, your general perspective here. Um, I want to ask some questions that I think some people watching would love to have answered. Sure. Um, so the first is, uh, you know, uh, we, we've now had several weeks of kind of failed attempts to rally here, right? Where we're middle of the week, you know, we, we have some sort of big buildup and then we lose it by the end of the week. Um, they've kind of been these, these, you know, mountain shaped weeks that we've had for the past several ones. This one was pretty extreme. You know, Wednesday had a face ripper rally uh, and everybody thought, all right, that's it. That's the bottom. Right. And classic yeah. bull trap people, you know, jump back in long thinking I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to catch the bottom here. I'm going to ride this bounce. And then they, they equally got their faces ripped off, you know, <laughs> yeah. on the way down. And, uh, and every rally over the past 48 hours has failed. Um, you know, today the market struggled and got back green a couple of times after mm -hmm. opening down pretty substantially, uh, but it just couldn't keep it, right? And okay. so first off, are those failed rallies anything that you're worried about here? Oh, absolutely. And look, it's not just failed rallies over this week. It's been failed rallies ever since the beginning of the year. Um, you know, we're so, you know, let's talk about the negative slope of the market, which is very important. The market's in a very negative trend ever since the January peak. There's a defined set of market tops and a defined set of market lows. Um, and this market has been trending negatively. There is also, you know, I'm going to throw out a term here and everybody's going to go, oh, yeah, I see that. 
got to be really careful with this because you know there's a lot of interpret when you're looking at chart patterns it's easy to make pink fuzzy muckings out of just about anything in the market um, but there is a fairly defined head and shoulders pattern with a sloping neckline that intersects with about 44,000, 40, 50 um, on the S&P right now. So, you know, a, a fail of that break line. And, and I would just use the nice round number of 4,000 because the markets are really looking at that level. So, you know, a break of 4,000 certainly suggests that markets could fall, you know, closer to 3,500, maybe even 3,000. And that's kind of hard to fathom here, you know, another thousand points after we've already done a lot of damage to the markets. Uh, again, you know, if you look at, as we talked about, I think last week, you take a look at a lot of the, the market, right? And, you know, we did the study of market cap above $7 billion and looking at the just hundreds of companies that are down 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%. You know, there's been a really big bear market that's been going on now, really since the beginning of this year, really, and going back into to, to 2021. But yet, markets have pretty much, you know, done nothing. And here's here's kind of a, a you know another takeaway from this is that you know this year seems terrible, and uh, this is also part of what I'm writing about in this weekend's newsletter. So we've had a 14% drawdown in the market at the, at the at the low point yesterday, and you know that seems awful. But this is coming off a 26% advance that we had in, in 2021 and another big advance you had in 2020. So you're up 120% from the March 2020 lows. You're down 14% from the peak. And we had warned you, not here on the show, unfortunately, because you weren't doing this show back then, but you know, in our newsletter and our commentary and our radio show and our podcast and things that we do on our website, you know, we were warning you, we said, hey, look, We've had a year where you have no volatility. The worst drawdown in 2021 was a 5% drawdown. It was a buy the dip mantra. Every time the markets dipped to the 50 day, you bought it and markets ran back up. And it was super easy to be long equity. And I said that when we got a normal average correction, it was going to feel a lot worse than it actually is. And that's exactly what's going on. 14% down this year is the average drawdown of the markets in any given year going back to 1960. So, you know, put it in that, does that mean that some years are, are, are bigger drawdowns? Absolutely, right? Uh, that's what averages are. Some are more, some are less, but on average, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13% drawdown in any year is about normal. You should kind of expect going into a year that at some point during the year, you're gonna have a 10% drawdown and the market's gonna recover and go back up. You know, so it's important. And, and again, what I'm trying to get across and, and is that it's about perspective and it's important to keep perspective because where we are right now, this is where investors make all their investment mistakes. This is where investors sell low. This is and, and of course, they were buying high last year. Now they're going to sell low and completely destroy their portfolio. This is the time to just step back for a second, evaluate the risk in your portfolio and say, what am I doing here? And what am I trying to achieve? And then rebalance that portfolio accordingly to start helping you get towards your goals. And again, you know, we're seeing a lot of people coming in right now with portfolios that are all over the place. They're, you know, they're all long gold and commodities or they're all long tech stocks or whatever it is. And we've talked about the risk of one-sided trades. And if Adam, we'll talk about this in a minute, but if, if, if Adam, and I have been talking about the last couple of weeks, we may have seen the peak of inflation. That doesn't necessarily bode well for commodity type stocks. So, 
you know, you want to be careful being on the wrong side of that trade if inflation starts to show some disinflationary pressures later this year. So this is the part about, you know, managing risk and understanding where you are and not allowing your emotions of what, you know, we think is going to happen drive our portfolio decisions. You know, I, I just wrote an article that I'm, I'm working on right now. And one of the quotes I've got in there is from Howard Marks and who from Oak Tree Capital. And he said, like, he says, you know, his quote says that throughout all of history, the worst of outcomes rarely happen. More often than not, the worst of outcomes are the best buying opportunities. And, and his point is, is that we tend to get into a position to where we think the world's about to end. And when we get into that position and it's like, the, you know, the, the economy is going to crash, the whole world's going to be over. That's probably the time you want to start buying assets, because generally that's about the time that you're getting assets at the right prices. Yeah, um, you're making a good case there for, for cash too to have some cash on hand to be able to deploy in those oh, times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that goes, you know, that echoes the whole Buffett, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And we've talked a little bit about this, which is, um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be the absolute uh, worst case scenario ever to be a good buying opportunity. A lot of what you do as a mm. professional financial advisor is sort of look at the cycles, both long-term and short-term. And we've been talking about some of the shorter term plays that your investments have been making, expecting there to be a reversal of trend. Right? Um, and uh, you know, we've talked about how it, it can be really hard to press the buy button, um, ex, you know, yeah. because you're fighting the trend, right? You, exactly. you, you, and at, at the maximum opportunity, it probably feels the maximum worst to press yeah. that buy button, right? Um, so I'm not, not, I'm not encouraging people to take unnecessary risks, but I'm just saying that, that to be an investor, you know, oftentimes you want to be buying when the herd is not, and that can feel lonely and scary at times. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a great point, Adam, that you, that you bring up. And it was something that Mike and I, Mike Leibowitz, my, uh, co-portfolio manager and I were talking about yesterday, you know, there's, we've talked about two things on the show here, and let's just use two really good examples here. Uh, the first is NVIDIA. So NVIDIA, so AMD just came out, blew away earnings just uh, this, this past week. Stock had a nice pop based on those earnings, you know, despite the fact that everybody thought the world's slowing down and couldn't get chips, you know, couldn't get chips for anything except for AMD just killed it on their earnings and revenue outlook was good also. NVIDIA is coming up to report and NVIDIA um, you know, is right in the center of that whole, you know, everything from graphics cards to video games to, you know, everything that we do in, in virtual reality and artificial intelligence. I mean, where the world's going, that's where NVIDIA is. And look, the stock's expensive, no doubt about this. But here, here's my point about it. The stock's been under a tremendous amount of pressure. If you could buy the stock today and put it away and not look at it for five years, you're probably going to make a good bit of money on it, right? Um, another another stock that I absolutely hate, same case, is probably Facebook. Um, you know, but the problem is, is that as we talked about before, we're constantly glued to our portfolio every minute of every day. What's up? What's down? You know, what's going on? And, and blinking red lights and green lights and oh my god! Let me ask you a question: If your investing time horizon is 10 or 15 years and you're buying good quality companies at good prices, what does it matter what the stock, what the stock market did today or tomorrow or next week, right? 
we're all wrapped up into what's happening in headlines and we're forgetting what our portfolio is supposed to be doing over time and what we're paying for assets and, and what, we're, what we're entering into in terms of a longer term perspective. Now, I'm not promoting buy and hold here. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm talking about is investing and, and buying stocks at cheap valuations or buying companies that have a a position in the markets that have been beaten down a lot that have some opportunity. And it doesn't mean go load up your entire portfolio on these things either, but there's buying opportunities. And we've talked about how to enter into a position, how to, how to, how to start building a position. You know, if, if a portfolio sizing and your portfolio is a 5% weight, you buy 1% now. And if the stock goes down some more, guess what? That's awesome. I'll buy another 1%. You know, as long as my thesis holds, as long as fundamentals remain, as long as, as technical trends remain in place and, and the stock is performing as I expect it to, you know, I, you know, I can I can invest in things and weather, you know, market turmoil in the short term. Now, look, there are certainly cases where you've got to change that decision. Peloton's a good example. Right. I mean, this is a company that everybody thought was going to dominate the world in making uh, standing coat racks for homes. And, you know, the reality is, is that it just that wasn't ever going to be the case. And that was a bad it was a flawed business model. It was a flawed business strategy. Some analysis would have told you that. But, you know, the stock began to reflect the real value of that company. And it was it was certainly a time to exit that strategy. And that's where you say, look, my strategy was wrong. What I thought was going to happen was incorrect. And that's where risk management comes in. But that's not dictated by a one-day move or a two-day move or a or, or, or one-month move, right? This is stuff that takes time to, to flesh out and to determine. And that's part of the investing process. The problem today is we're so short-term, you know, every moment of every day, we're looking at what, the, what every single thing in the portfolio is doing. And we forget about what the portfolio is doing. And we and Adam, you and I have used the engine and the car. So, you know, we've used a ton of analogies, right? But, you know, we forget about what the engine is doing and how is my engine performing relative to what my goals are, not these individual specific issues. Now, look, I'm, again, I want to be clear. I'm not promoting buy and hold. And I'm not saying just ignore things that are going wrong in your portfolio. You've got to manage those risks, but don't lose sight of what your goals and objectives are on these, you know, weekly turmoils. And again, this week is a great example. It was like, you know, my God, you know, my portfolio just what just blew out the back end over the last two days. I'm losing all kinds of money. Well, not really. You're about where you were at the beginning of the week. <laughs> you know, so you know what what really changed over the course of this week? Nothing. Uh, in fact, you're about where you were last week too. So. Over the last two weeks, markets have gone up and down a whole lot. It's been a hell of a ride. It's been absolutely a, one heck of a stock market roller coaster. But at the end of the day, we haven't gone anywhere. We've just made a big loop around the track and are back where we started. The question will be now, what happens as we go, go ahead? All right. And I want to get into that, to that with you. And I, want to, um, I also want to get into uh, a number of sort of still outstanding risks. Um, you know, we got to talk about the recent Fed meeting, we got to talk about inflation, we got to talk about housing, we got to talk about margin calls. Um, then we're going to talk about what, what are you guys doing right now for what you see coming. Um, but before that, I want to pull a conversation I was planning on having later in this conversation up, up to the forefront now because you, you just addressed it. Um, so I was talking to John Penn, 
um, fellow at your organization who, when people are fill out the form for Wealthion and want to talk to you, he's the guy who actually does, you know, the onboarding for them. Um, and uh, he's on the front lines, you know, talking to all these people that are, that are calling in. And uh, he's a great sort of, you know, finger on the pulse of the, the customer for me. And so yeah, he comes yeah. back to me and tells me, you know, hey, this is what I'm hearing from folks. And one thing he said recently was um, uh, he's definitely seeing a lot of anxiety around people who, who have this, this strong pressure to, to keep pace or to beat the market, right? And he, he just said, hey, you and I want to talk about this for a moment and, and let's do so. And I want to go back to the, the car analogy, the, the engine analogy you mentioned earlier. Um, so when you're going somewhere, you know, when you get in your car to go somewhere, what are you really counting on? Well, you're counting on your car to get you where you want to go by the time you need to be there, right? right. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're the first one there, the last one there, whatever. It doesn't matter how fast the car is on the highway drive or how fast you're driving relative to them. All you really care about is, am I getting where I want to go by the time I need to get there, right? And I think investing is, you want to have a similar mindset when you put together your portfolio strategy, when you think about your investment portfolio, which is, I just need to get this, this need, I need this to get me to meet my goals by the time in life I want to meet them. And if you put the added stress on you of, I need to be beating the market this year, this month, this week, that's when the emotions creep in. And that's when the doubt creeps in and you start saying, well, Jesus, I got to sell this company because it's gone down today, or this one's, you know, I'm not in and it's taking off. So I need to jump into that. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously are on the front lines of this, uh, Lance, so I'll let you jump in here. But but is, is this the right way to be sort of telling people to kind of maybe reframe how they think about all this? Yeah, you know, it's actually a great example, you know. Let's say that that uh, you know Adam, I, I'm going to fly out to your house um, in California, and you and I are going to jump in a car, and we're going to drive to um, Las Vegas. Okay, we're going to go have a boys' weekend in Las Vegas. My wife will never agree to this, but we're going to have a boys' weekend in Vegas. Yours won't either, I know. Yeah, my uh, neither. <laughs> but we have two ways to get to Vegas, right? In your car, we can drive super fast and get there pretty quick right? The other option is, is that we can drive safely. We won't get there as quick, but we'll get there. So we have two options. So, you know, let's take the, let's drive as fast as we possibly can. This is the analogy of trying to beat a random benchmark index to get to our goals. Now we may get there safely and everything may be just fine, but if I'm driving really, really fast, and I'm not talking about driving 10 miles over the speed limit, Adam, we're in what kind of car? Are you we're, we're in Cannonball Run. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So you, we've got your Volkswagen, and we're doing 120. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure it could do more than 105, but anyways, <laughs> you get the idea. So you know, we're in the Scooby Doo van. We're going as fast as we can. We have a blowout. You know, um, you know, we we bust a radiator. Whatever happens, right? But the potential for an accident is greatly elevated. And the potential, if we do have an accident, for instance, let's just say we have a blowout, the damage that results from a blowout at a very high, high rate of speed is much potentially, you know, keeps us from ever reaching our destination, right? That, and that's really the point. So when I'm trying to beat some random benchmark index for one day, one week, one month, one year, you know, I'm going to have 
problems along the way. And the, the, the more, the faster I'm trying to drive to get to my goal, the bigger the accident is going to be. Because if I'm driving the speed limit, you know, Adam, you and I were back in the Scooby-Doo van, we're going to Las Vegas and, you know, we have a blowout, but we're driving the speed limit. Yeah, we, you know, we have to slow down, we pull over, we lose half an hour or so changing out the tire and we get back on the road and we go on and, and get to our destination. Yeah, it's not nearly as exciting. And, you know, sure, we had a delay. And, and that's the point here is that if I'm just managing my portfolio, let me give you an example. 60-40 allocations this year are negative. Now, the market's down about 14%, and I haven't checked the benchmark lately, but I'm probably going to assume the 60-40 right now is down probably 9-10% for the year. So, it's, it's not down as much as the market, but our portfolios, because of where we're carrying our, our weight, we have about 30% in cash and we have our fixed income and we have our equities. We're running about a 500 basis point lead over that index. So yeah, we're, we're still traveling along with the index, but we're in a position that if the market really crashes or if something really happens, you know, you know, we're still okay. We can pull over here. We're taking, you know, we, we've got a little bit of, of a delay towards our financial goals. We've got a little bit of a flat tire right now, but we're going to be able to, to quickly fix the automobile, get the car back on the road and get to our goals rather than trying to make up some catastrophic problem that, that occurred from trying to drive too fast. And, and that's really kind of the, the frame that you take as an investor. Look, not every year is going to be a positive return. Not every week, every month, every day is going to be a positive return. You cannot invest in the markets and not have volatility in your portfolio. You're going to have years months, weeks, whatever it is, where you're going to have a negative return in your portfolio. That's completely okay. There's nothing wrong with that as long as the structure is in place that over time, your money will grow with the markets. Trying to avoid losses, this is what we call psychologically as loss aversion. If you try to avoid all losses, you're going to wind up creating more trouble for your portfolio than actually just writing a market crash out through it and, and back to recovery because of all the psychological problems that will come involved with, you know, trying to, to get out of the market and get back in. And we've talked about these issues on the show here before, Adam, about people who've been out of the market since 2009. You know, the, the, the point of investing is to build a structure, build a car that'll get you to where you want to go safely. But that doesn't mean that along the way, you're not going to have a few delays. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. All right, great. And, and look, um, you know, I think we could spend even more time on this, um, really hammering the point home. But I think uh, both I want to get back to sort of some of the news of the day, but also, um, uh, you know, we're spending this much time, folks, because, you know, as Lance, you were saying, you're beginning to really hear people, you know, pick up the phone and talk to you with the emotion in their voice. And okay. you're, you're, the general message here to folks is, take a breath, <laughs> you know, don't let the emotions drive you, work your plan. If you don't have a plan, put one in place. If you want help, work with a professional financial advisor to do that. Mm -hmm. But don't let, you know, the emotion, uh, the emotional charge of the moment force you to make bad decisions at this point. Yep. All right, Lance, um, I want to get back to a couple of, of key things that I'm sure are on people's minds. And let's just start with your reaction to the Fed, right? So we had Powell get in front of the cameras the other day. Um, he said a couple of things that were interesting to me. I mean, one, he confirmed that uh, mm -hmm. the Fed was going to uh, hike rates by 50 basis points. Um, it made people feel like, yeah, that's probably going to happen again at the next meeting. 
Um, but he said two things that really stuck with me. Um, one was he said, you know, hey, um, we're we're super serious about controlling the demand and and harped on it enough and dodged enough pointed questions during the Q&A that I kind of took from that. He was saying like, yeah, I'm actually kind of willing to sacrifice the market and the economy a bit to bring inflation down. Again, how long is he going to be able to maintain his backbone there? We don't know. We've talked about that in the past. But he did seem to be saying a little bit like, trust me on this, guys. I'm going to be serious. Um, but the other thing he mentioned that I thought was refreshing, I guess, but he admitted several times, we have no control over the supply side, right? So people were asking him questions about, all right, what's happening with you know commodity prices going up because of supply chain uh, breakages or Russian embargo and stuff like that. And he basically just sort of shrugged and said, it's out of my hands. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I've just rarely seen the Fed be so uh, openly admissive of uh, its, its powerlessness, but that is completely true. And that's a really important point for us to keep in mind as we go forward from here is there are factors, they're not driving all trends in the world right now, but there are big factors driving a number of trends here that the Fed has absolutely no control over here. So it's not all in the Fed's hands. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. I mean, there's there's some things happening, uh, like you said, that the Fed can't control. And and I, let's just be honest, the Fed can't control anything. Uh, you know, it's it's absolute hubris that the Fed even thinks they can control employment or price stability or anything else. Uh, they've been terrible at that job for the last 40 years. So I don't know why anybody ever expects them to get it right this time. But, you know, hey, we keep you know, I guess if you try to get enough, maybe one day they'll get lucky. Um, but yeah, two things that he said I thought was interesting. One is that, you know, they're going to, they're, they're not even considering 50 base, uh, 75 basis point rate hikes. So I'm going to do 50 basis point hikes. And, you know, so, the, sorry to interrupt, but that yeah. a lot of people think that that's what caused the huge spike on, on Wednesday, right? No, that, well, that was part of it. The other side of it, the, the, the conversation about not considering 75 basis point hikes, yes, that was the big kind of momentary spike we had in the markets. But it was also the fact they're tapering their balance sheet slower than was previously expected. They're going to start at 47.5 billion and go to 90 billion in three months, uh, 95 billion, I'm sorry, in three months, and they'll stay there. Now, here's the interesting thing I ran a chart for this weekend's newsletter that shows the Fed balance sheet. And if you run that taper on their balance sheet, they will only reduce the balance sheet to seven and a half trillion dollars by the end of 2023. So it really doesn't, you know, it sounds like a lot, but because of the roll-offs that happen in the balance sheet, it's not really going to reduce the balance sheet that much. So, you know, there's a lot of angst in the market about what this tapering is going to do, but it's not really kind of as big as you think. Um, the other side of this coin also is that, you know, as the Fed is looking forward, Neil Kashkari was out today saying that he thinks the Fed can only get to about 2%, which is the neutral rate. Now, that's about a point and a half lower than what the Fed funds rate thinks it's going to be. So, you know, there's a kind of, you know, two schools here, and this is more in line with what you and I have been talking about is that I think there's a lot less room for the Fed to hike rates. And what the Fed's really hoping for, to your point, is that the market, that the economy and the markets are going to do the work for the Fed. So they don't have to hike as much. They're, they're wanting the stock market to come down. They want the housing market to come down. They want the economy to slow down, which will quell inflation. So they're okay with letting that happen for now because it's all been pretty controlled up to this point. When it gets uncontrolled, 
that's going to be where they really run into a problem. And that could happen at 50, another 50 basis point hike or one after that. But you're going to pop something in the market. I don't know when it's going to be, but that's when you get that uncontrolled event in the market that causes that kind of oh, oh darn moment for the Fed and, and they start trying to reverse course. All right. And, and you know, what is interesting is um, we are now, I think, beginning to see some signs of demand destruction. I think yeah. we're we're early in here, right? And whether the, the demand destruction is caused by the high prices that inflation's you know resulted in, or whether it's you know the, the yields have come up and, and things are just getting more expensive, uh, and and the Fed's jawboning and all that stuff. Yeah. I can't, can't say for sure which one it is, but we are actually beginning to see some important initial signs. Um, I'm going to share a tweet here real quickly. This is from a, a, an account car dealership guy, but this is a guy who works at the car dealership and he just sort of shares in real time, you know, what he's seeing. Uh, his latest tweet here says the Mannheim used car index just recorded its largest 90 day decline in history, 6.6% since January. Uh, another tweet, every car dealer I'm speaking with is slow, like really slow. Seems like the CarMax Carvana earnings may have been the canary in the coal mine. So, you know, we've remarked over past videos that, you know, over the past two years, you know, auto prices went bananas, ballistic mm -hmm. um, for two reasons. One, um, supply chain shortages uh, dramatically reduced the number of microchips that were available to make cars. Cars require a gazillion different microchips from a gazillion different suppliers. And so new car uh, inventory, new car supply dried up. And so everybody, when they started getting their stimulus checks and whatnot and needed a car, they went into the used car market and drove those prices bananas. I think everybody's heard the, the stories of people whose cars were like, you know, seven years old and their resale price of that seven-year-old car was higher than the MSRP when they actually bought the car new, right? So it looks like we are now beginning to see some moderation there. Um, we're also beginning to see some early signs in the housing market. Um, uh, Redfin has announced that they're beginning to see uh, some uh, price declines, more price declines than they've seen in a long time uh, in, in a number of, of the hotter markets here. It's not a full-blown you know, rollover yeah. yet, but they're beginning to see those initial signs. And uh, Zillow stock plunged 9% yesterday uh, after hours because the executive said, uh, quote, one thing that is clear about the 2022 housing market is that the path ahead is uncertain. And I got to tell you, that is a complete like 180 degrees from where those guys were talking, you know, just a couple quarters ago. Yeah. Um, so all of a sudden housing, which was this unstoppable juggernaut, you know, now that it's slammed into five plus percent, you know, 30 year fixed mortgages, almost a doubling since last summer, um, we're really beginning to see, you know, uncertainty, which of course is the prelude to anxiety in that market. So I'll stop talking here, Lance, but but we are beginning to see that, you know, the, the raging, um, you know, demand uh, of the past couple of years, you know, maybe shifting into reverse here. Yeah, I think it's funny too, because, you know, if you look at the real estate market in particular, you know, Redfin, Open Door, Zillow Group, you know, this was the new evolution of housing. Housing was never going to be the same again because we're going to do it all online and we're going to do, you know, all this activity. And Zillow gets into buying houses and they're going to just be the intermediary between the buyer and the seller and flip these homes. And of course, it's always the case when you start seeing companies get into areas of the market they shouldn't get into. It's almost always an indication that you're near a peak of some sort and bad outcomes always happen. Uh, I'm just writing an article about SPACs and 
you know, remember in 2020, 2021, we had a record issuance of SPACs, which are these special special purpose acquisition companies that basically took in a, they, they're called blank check companies. Investors gave them- Give me capital. the money and maybe I'll figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Exactly. There's like 950 of them that still don't have a target that they took in all this money for from investors and they've got nothing to buy with it. And now you don't want to buy anything because everything you buy is basically getting trashed. Um, you know, but but this is just the that hallmark epitome of market fervor and speculative activity where people are just literally writing blank checks to stuff that they don't even know anything about. But hey, why not? You know, everything's going up. How can I lose? It's, it's a no lose market. And it was funny because retail investors were going, oh, you know, I got Wall Street by the tail now. These Robin Hood Wall Street bet guys. You know, they're like, you know, we're going to take advantage of Wall Street. And, and for the first time, the retail trader is going to, going to, going to rule, the, rule the markets. And Wall Street was sitting back laughing their ass off going, yeah, here's some more SPAC for you. Just, you know, all you want, give me the money because they're the ones underwriting this. This is how they make money. And so Wall Street, as usual, wins the game. The retail trader takes it in the shorts. And, you know, this is this is the problem with all these thesis and themes. You know, look, I, 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 I like Kathy Wood. I think she's, you know, great. But, you know, her whole thesis behind her her investments are flawed. You know, they're they're based on this premise about innovation, but she's refusing to look at fundamentals, which is what drive companies long term. And there's a big chunk of companies that likely in her portfolio are going to wind up worthless. Now, there's a few there's a few gems in there that will probably come out and be worth a lot of money someday. But, you know, the, the problem is, is that in these moments where you have a stimulus liquidity fueled market, everybody forgets about the fundamental value of markets and how they work. And I know that's boring, old, fuddy-duddy stuff, and, and you're probably an old baby boomer if you believe in that type of thing. But ultimately, <laughs> that's the way markets work, and we're coming back to that now. All right. So you're making the, the key takeaway I want folks to, to take from all this. Um, and I'm going to mention one more point before I, I, I mm -hmm. hammer it home, which is um, if you look at consumer credit, um, I mentioned this in the video that I did a couple of weeks back on how the uh, consumer is really beginning to tap out and get into trouble here. Yeah. Um, I'll put up a, a link to that video for those who haven't watched it. It's short and sweet. It's about 12 minutes, but it's full of data. Um, but uh, the uh, latest stats came out for last month, I believe. Um, consumer credits increased by 52 billion versus expectations of 25 billion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the previous month it had been at 37.7 billion. So a pretty dramatic jump. Uh, yeah. in consumer credit and, um, uh, you know, uh, fast outpace, you know, more than folks expected and fast outpacing the previous period. Um, it's another sign that people are basically, you know, now that they've all, all the excess support they had during the pandemic that's now gone away um, is gone. And to keep things going, to keep making ends meet, they are just maxing out their credit cards here right now. So it's another Absolutely. sort of late stage sign. So just to encapsulate what you said there, Lance, is we have had this, this massively fueled, we can call it a bubble, we can call it a stimulus, you know, overdrive, whatever, but it's led us to these, you know, in, in, it engendered a ton of speculation, a ton of euphoria, and it led us up to this peak. And now the supports have been removed, right? Mm -hmm. So what you and I are kind of talking about on a week to week basis here is 
we expect a repricing of that, right? Especially because the Fed is trying to dismantle the support that it's been providing. Mm -hmm. Now, the, th the thesis is at, <laughs> what we think is going to happen is it's going to fall faster and farther at some point than the Fed really intends. And you mentioned they've got pretty cruel tools. So they're then going to scramble to try to you know, undo things. But we're trying to get people to get prepared for that elevator drop, right? right. No matter what happens, whether it, you know, we get the worst case scenario or the Fed pivots midway through and things start to rebound, there is going to be some sort of air pocket here that we want to make sure that folks are at least taking into consideration and trying to get as prudently positioned for as possible here. So no, I'll stop I, talking I, and let you jump in. No, so a couple of things. One real important is that, you know, and the inflation we have today is not driven by organic activity. It is a monetary phenomenon, to your point. It is simply a function of all that liquidity that we shoved into the markets. And, uh, you know, free checks are not free. Um, you know, unfortunately, you're now having the payback for those free checks. And so you got all this free money. That's great. You went out and spent it. Well, here's the payback for it. It's coming in the form of tax through inflation. And you're absolutely right, Adam. You know, you take a look at consumer credit, sharp increases in that. And, and, and consumers aren't going on to credit to expand their spending. They are just trying to, to your point, they're just trying to, to keep ends meeting. And wages aren't going up. If you took a look at the employment report that was out on Friday as a good example of this, wages actually fell. Real disposable incomes are now negative uh, sharply negative over the course of the last year over year comparison, retail sales, real retail sales are falling because we're not buying more volume of retail sales. We're just paying more for the same amount of volume. So when you start taking a look at all these impacts, that is all demand destruction. And, and well, I guess we're going to talk about inflation here in a second, but this is kind of leading us up to that conversation is that that demand destruction is a very disinflationary event. And I know that everybody's got this view in the world that you know, we're just going to have this continued runaway inflation of 10, 11, 12, 13, 15%. You know, it's the 70s reborn again. We just don't have the economic support to run that type of inflation. You know, people are talking about, you know, interest rates on 10-year treasuries are going to go to 5%, 6%, 8% on 10-year treasuries. Can't. Too much leverage in the economy. Too much, too much overhang in terms of, of debt through households. Credit card interest payments go up. Consumers can't make those payments. They've got to start cutting back dramatically at that point. And you begin to see retail demand. 70% of, of GDP is consumption. You start seeing that real dis demand destruction of the economy. That's a very disinflationary, deflationary event. Prices come down, interest rates will fall, and the Fed's going to be trying to figure a way out of their problem they've created. But that's just the eventual outcome of all of this. And again, you know, look, bonds have been under a tremendous amount of pressure. We've talked about this um, just about every week. But, you know, uh, bonds are still under a lot of pressure. Interest rates hit about 3.1% today. We are four standard deviations above long-term mo monthly moving averages. We're at levels that we have never been to historically going back to the 1950s in terms of deviations from long-term means and interest rates, we're at the level that something historically has broken every single time and rates tend to fall very quickly when that happens. So again, it could be another, again, this is monthly data. So again, it could be three months from now, it could be four months from now, it could be five months from now on a chart, you won't be able to tell the difference because it's not a daily chart. But when you start seeing, you know, long-term moving averages and deviations and overbought conditions and, and things that we have right now in the bond market, 
it, it is screaming that you've got a problem coming down the road economically. It's just a function of time till it gets here. And you know, the Fed's gonna have a whole lot of a whole lot of problem when it happens. Okay, great. And I wanna I wanna talk more specifically about bonds in just a second, but you did a great job of of delivering the punchline of what I was leading up to here, which is this is probably going to be a little bit controversial for some folks, but I guess the message I think we're trying to convey to folks here is prepare for disinflation and then possibly deflation yeah. over the rest of this year, right? And again, you know, everyone right now is so understandably focused on inflation and is out of control and whatnot, but um, uh, there, there's much going on kind of beneath the surface here that is going to create that, that elevator drop we talked about. And, and one important element, which is covered in that, that video I mentioned, um, you talked about how consumer spending drives 70% of the economy. Um, that, that video I talked about talked about the concept of debt saturation, which is the consumer takes on more debt up until the point where they cannot take on any more debt at all afterwards. They literally max out. So it's just like you know, spooning that sugar into your lemonade is it dissolves, it dissolves, it dissolves, you hit the saturation point and bang, none of it dissolves anymore. So the spending can really just sort of stop on a dime, so to speak. And that can be, you know, obviously would be incredibly deflationary. Um, so, uh, you know, watch the inflation numbers closely. We're going to do that. We're going to have the latest CPI number coming out this coming week. We'll see if we're vindicated as the guys who put their necks out and said, we think it's going to be a lower percentage than it was this previous month. We'll see. We could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm open to being wrong, but I don't yeah, yeah. think it's going to be many more months of increase if it is. Right. Well, no, and I think, uh, you know, and two points, you know, just real quick, because that's such an important point. And so many people, and I know we've talked about it here before on the show, but just to reiterate this is that CPI is measured on a year-over-year basis. So when we see the print, you know, this month, maybe not. Maybe this month we come in line with inflation estimates. It's, it's possible because uh, energy prices have, been, have remained high here for you know, the last couple of months, and energy runs about a three-month lag going into PCE. So um, when, you, when you start looking at inflation, it's possible this month that you know comparing to where we were in april of last year that we were just starting to pull a positive number in in april of last year so it's still very possible that inflation might trend a little bit higher this month it's not going to be like one percent higher right it's it's it may be one tenth of one percent higher it might be slightly higher it might be in line there's a real there's a real possibility adam you're absolutely right it might come in like one tenth of a percent lower but as we get into the May's number, June's number, July's number, we're comparing on a year-over-year -year basis, and those back-end numbers are starting to rise dramatically. So just think about where we are next year at this time. We're comparing to 8 and 9% growth rates on inflation. So just mathematically speaking, and this is the hard thing for people to understand because they go to the gas pump and they're going, damn it. The gas is still $4 a gallon. How come you're telling me there's disinflation in the economy? It's because of the way we measure inflation. It doesn't mean your prices go down. It means that the comparison rate is going down and that's disinflationary. Exactly. Just to beat this dead horse, um, <laughs> when we talk about CPI coming down, we don't necessarily mean prices coming yeah. down. We just big, mean the rate of difference. increase. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Big, big difference. Um, all right. So uh, sorry to speak quickly, but I'm just trying to bang a lot of this stuff out because I, yeah. I see we're going to get near the hour. I know we're going to go beyond it. I just don't want to go egregiously yeah. beyond it yeah. like we're always guilty of. Um, 
So Bont, um, uh, TLT, we get asked about it all the time because yeah. we've talked about it a lot. Um, I definitely seen a bunch of questions in YouTube. I'm sure you're getting questions from clients. Um, so let's just talk about what happened this week. So uh, the the 10-year the bond went up to 3.1, like you mm -hmm. said. Right? I think it's the highest it's been this year so far, if I'm not mistaken. Been the um, highest level since 2018. All right. So since 2018. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yields go up, prices go down, right? So I think last time I saw it a few hours ago, uh, this is pretty close to the close. TLT was trading at like 114. Um, I can't remember what it started the year at, but like maybe in the 150s or something like mm -hmm. that. So it's yeah. been a sort of a steady escalator down. I'm sure that a lot of people saying, when is it going to end? You know, what I heard you say earlier is, hey, nobody knows for sure. But if we look at, you know, historical technicals, this thing is going back to your rubber band analogy. Yeah. This band is ridiculously stretched here. Uh, we've had the largest drawdown in bonds since 1778. And the point about that is, is that we've had periods in history where you've had very large drawdowns in both equities and in bonds. And if, you know, if I was telling you right now that the equity market was down 50% and I wanted to, I wanted you to go in and start buying stocks like crazy, everybody would be telling you, are you nuts? This market's going to zero. But, you know, when you have, you know, major drawdowns in, in asset classes, that's generally the time you want to be a buyer. But it's very difficult because in psychology, we, we believe it's just going to keep going down. It's just never, ever going to go up again. And that's, that's always the problem with investing. And bonds right now are in essentially a 50% bear market drawdown for equities. I mean, on, on a relative basis, it's one of the largest drawdowns in the history of bond markets. And every single time in history, the subsequent year was a very large increase for bonds. And that's because generally you're gonna bust something in the market because interest rates are going up, bond prices are going down. And remember, there's there's a fundamental, I get a lot of questions. It's like, well, Lance, you do such a good job of you know, taking profits and, and you know, cutting losers short in equities. Why are you still sitting on these bond positions? And the reason is, is that I've got two things that are going on with our bond position. First of all, there's a longer term thesis. We're not trading bonds short term. We've got a, a thesis in place in our portfolio as a hedge against equity, equity market risk. Adam, you were just talking about a second. What happens if that gap opens up in the markets and stocks fall by 20 percent? Where does money go? Where is money going to go? It's going to go into treasuries. So as a hedge against a, a big gap open in the market, we own bonds for that hedge. If I'm short the market, and let's put it in equity terms, let's say that I'm long stocks and I'm shorting the market to hedge against my long position and stocks are still going up. What's happening to my short position? What's happening to my hedge? It's going down in value. But my long positions are still making me money. That's okay. And like I said earlier, right now, our portfolio is beating our benchmark by about 500 basis points because of both our equity strategy, our exposure to cash and our hedges with bonds. You know, those are all playing their important part of managing that portfolio return. So the point here is simply this, is that a hedge doesn't necessarily work well when markets are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And right now we've got a very interesting situation going on because bonds and stocks are highly correlated. 
that only happens typically for a very short time in the markets. Those, those correlations between stocks and bonds, when they're positively correlated, don't last very long. So again, you know, you know, I've got it, we've got a position in TLT in our portfolio to both hedge our portfolio in the event of something going wrong. But, but B, the longer term thesis is, is that the Fed's going to break something and interest rates are going uh, to drop lower. And again, you know, you, I'm on record saying this and I'll say it again, is that my bet is that over the next 12 to 18 months that stocks are going to, uh, sorry, that bonds will outperform stocks in terms of total return. All right. Well, we will be tracking that every week here on this program. So we'll see. And, that and of course, it'll happen. Of course, that's going to happen 19 months from now. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, two quick things I want to get into, uh, unless we stumble into one of our epic rants. Um, very quickly, I just want to ask the question about margin calls to mm -hmm. see if that's something that you're worried about at all here. So getting back to where at the beginning of the discussion, um, you know, markets have come down, they're very, uh, you know, uh, uncertain right now, and people have lost a fair amount of money, funds have lost a fair amount of money in this process, especially if you've been in the, you know, Kathy Wood type of companies and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so there are these things called margin calls, where if you've been trading on margin, where, you know, a fair amount of investors do, um, and, and up until relatively recently, margin debt was the highest it had ever been. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when you have sudden surprising drawdowns, what, what can happen or what often happens when there's a sharp surprising drawdown is the, those investors get what are called margin calls, where they're, say, they're, they're told, hey, you, you've got to have enough capital in your account with us to cover your exposure here because the, you know, the security you bought on margin just dropped a lot. And if you don't give us that money fast, um, we're going to start selling your position to cover it, right? And so those margin calls can basically kind of add fuel to the, you know, a, a market drop fire because um, either the, you know, the exchange starts selling your or the brokerage starts selling your uh, position for you because you haven't given them more money, or you have to go out and sell something else, mm -hmm. putting downward pressure on that asset to meet your margin calls here. So. You know, sometimes what can happen is, is they can kind of create this cascading domino effect in asset prices. It, given that we're kind of on the cusp of the, you know, year lows and whatnot, and you talked about kind of if we punch through them, there could be a pretty big air pocket below to 3000. How worried are you about margin calls right here? Um, uh, well, uh, very concerned. And, and, you know, so two things. One about margin calls, it's all about math. Um, you know, so if I have $100 in my account and it's an equity. So let's say I own $100 worth of Apple. In most margin accounts, I can borrow, say, 50% of an equity uh, like Apple. So I can leverage my account up to $150. So I can have 50% of, and just we're just using round numbers, margin levels change with different firms and different stocks, but just simple math here. Um, so let's say that I have a 50% margin line and, and, you know, max in my portfolio. And I've got $100 worth of Apple and I go buy another $50 worth of Apple on margin. So now I've got $150 worth of Apple. Sounds great. So what that is, and to your point, the way margin works is, is that if Apple declines in value to the point that it triggers the, the requirements of the firm and whatever broker lent, lent me the money, on margin, it's a, it's a loan, 
whatever that is, there's a there's a level to where that firm will then call me. And to your point, they'll say, okay, you know, the the stock has fallen from hundred dollars, it's now ninety dollars, and you know, you can only have a fifty percent margin line. So a fifty percent margin line on ninety dollars is only you know forty five dollars. So I've got to go sell. Five, I've either got to put five dollars in to the account, or I've got to go sell five dollars worth of stock. Well, when I sell something. It now reduces that. So I have to sell $5 worth of Apple. Now I only have $85 worth of Apple, which means that my margin line is now only, you know, uh, $42.5. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just this, as to your point, is that once the selling starts, it creates this frenzy because we're constantly knocking down the value, requiring more selling, which lowers the value of the margin limit, which requires more selling. And that's the real risk. Now, margin debt has been coming down from the peak because. Uh, you know, a lot of people were long margin in a lot of these meme stocks and uh, Kathy Wood type stocks, et cetera. So we've seen margin debt increasing, but it's still at a higher level than we saw at any previous peak in the markets. I mean, the amount of leverage put in the markets over the last you know, five years in particular has just been astronomical. So, but those levels are coming down and the risk is, as always, is about 20%. And if you go back to March of 2020, when we got down about 20, 25% on the market, now we were going down pretty quick in March of 2020, but when we hit that 20, 25% level, that's where the Fed started reversing and started talking about setting up, you know, uh, you know uh, bailouts and this type of thing. And, you know, we're talking about bailing out corporations that, you know, and lifelines and, and, you know, the government was talking about, you know, doing other stuff. You know, but that's because we were right to that point. And that's where the Fed started buying junk bond ETFs and started buying bond ETFs. They were doing everything they could to keep those margin lines from completely blowing apart because that's the big risk is that if you start, if you bust those margin lines, I wrote about this uh, a few years ago. You know, those margin lines are like a tanker of gasoline, right? I mean, we're not talking a bucket of gasoline, we're talking like a tanker of gasoline. And all it requires is a spark to ignite that. And, and again, if you start busting those levels where you start getting accelerated selling and these brokerage firms start really worrying about the ability of people to meet margin demand, they're all going to call up and say, Adam, you need to cover your margin line by three o'clock this afternoon. If you don't, we're going to liquidate your account. And that's the problem with margin that people don't understand when they get into it. They go, oh, yeah, I'll borrow on it. And, you know, if everything goes, you know, thing goes wrong, I'll just cover it. It's not at your discretion to cover that line. It's at the broker dealer's discretion. And they call you up and say, either you pay or we liquidate by three o'clock today. It's not, they're not going to give you a month to come up with the money to cover that line. You're going to do it today or we'll do it for you. It's not at your discretion. And that's the risk to the markets. When those lines go, it goes right across the market. All right. Well, maybe we should have stumbled into our, our topic of outrage. Um, we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but a question for you, Lance. So it sounds like we learned nothing from the 2008 crisis when it came to margin debt, correct? Um, we learned nothing from the 2008 crisis, period. I know, we could say that basically on everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the reason I say that, you know, again, I was, I was talking to- uh, oh, wait, Hey, we, we learned how to paper over our problems for 10 yeah, years. We did, we did. No, but I was talking to a guy the other day and super nice guy, he's young, he's, you know, he's about 35 years old. And, you know, he reads a lot of the kind of the mainstream kind of retail, you know, media, right? And I, I won't mention any names, 
and he was read he was naming off some of the guys that he follows and you know he was debating me on really we're talking about passive investing and buy and hold investing versus active and his whole premise was well, you know active investing always underperforms markets over time you should just passive index i'm like yeah 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 gotcha been there done that um here's the problem everybody he's following and reading about this passive in, in investing they didn't even start investing in the markets till 2010, 2011. They've never been through a bear market. Yeah. All, all they know is the tailwind backstop by the Fed. Yeah. Yeah. And so buy and hold is, yeah. You know what? 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, buy and hold because it worked. Right. And look, and buy and hold still works today. Right. We're still not in a bear market. Right. We, we haven't done that. I'm, I'm doing a chart uh, in this weekend's newsletter just saying, where's the bottom? And I've got a monthly chart that is looking at the 34-month moving average, so roughly three years, and using that as kind of a bullish trend line. So if you're if you're just looking at you know kind of where was the bullish trend line and the markets going back to 1990, a 34-month moving average gives you a pretty decent level. That every time the market came down and touched that moving average. That was the bottom of the correction and it took off. Now, if you violated that correction of that level and you've only done that twice since 1990, I'll let you guess when those two points were. Um, then it went to a standard deviation below that level, 2000, 2008, obviously. And you take a look at the, the monthly RSI index, which you know, it's a relative strength index. The only two times in the, since 1990 that the relative strength index went from above 80 to below 20 was during the two bear markets of 2000 and 2008. Every other time that you had even a sizable correction, and this includes the corrections of March 2020, mind you, which everybody called the bear market. It wasn't. It was a correction because you only touched the bullish trend line and the relative strength index never got below 50. And so for all intents and purposes, that was a bull market correction. We are still in a bull market. We have not entered into a bear market because we're still above that 34-week moving average. To get to that 34-week moving average, we need another 22% to the downside, just to put it into perspective. A 50% Fibonacci correction from the 2009 bear market bottom would require a decline of 44% from the peak. That puts you back around 3,000 on the index or so. So look, I mean, there's, there's certainly some downside risk here, but you know, when we're talking about bull markets and bear markets, you know, the buy and hold mantra right now still seems to be working because we're still in technically a bull market. It certainly doesn't feel that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the these kind of buy and hold investors and that idea, they're not going to come to that rude awakening until we're down that extra 22%. Then all of a sudden, they're going to start to question the reality of what just happened to about five years worth of their gains in their portfolio. At 44% down, we're now going to be back to 2015, where I just lost seven years of returns out of my portfolios, you know, that's the damage that buy and hold investing will ultimately inflict on investors. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you're just talking about buy and hold investing of the indices. Um, yeah. You know, there have been people, as you've said, you know, you look at the, the NASDAQ for sure. A lot of companies in there have had massive corrections, you yeah. know, this year. Um, 
So uh, and it could get worse as the if the industry continues going down. All right, look, um, I've got uh, two last things I want to try to squeeze in here before we wrap things up. The first okay. one important, which is what trades, if any, have you made since last week and why? Um, so two trades we made this week um, in our equity model, we bought um, a little bit of Verizon because it's got a five and a half percent dividend yield. Fundamentals look pretty good. Stock's been beaten to death here lately. And so we're looking to add a little bit of the value story into our portfolio. Again, during if we do have a more of a decline, value tends to outperform better than growth will. And of course, we talked about previously that we reduced- right. And you get paid for holding it too. And you get paid for holding it. Um, and we talked about previously, we reduced a lot of our technology growth exposure. We still own the ones we like. Um, portions of them. We own very small amounts of them. And we'll, we're looking for a point to add to those exposures at, you know, when we start seeing the more of the disinflationary trends of the market, which will be good for growth stocks. Um, we also bought, a, we also added to our position in public storage, PSA. And the reason for that is we had sold it previously and, and taken profits out of it, reduced our position size. And the stocks had a fairly big correction here over the last couple, really the last month because of this market sell-off. It's really been pretty broad. It's, it's pretty much hit everything uh, to a large degree. So uh, PSA had a very, very big decline. And the thesis behind that is if we do get into... <laughs> <laughs> a economic slowdown, you know, issue in the economy and people start getting evicted out of their homes. There's two things that people will pay for regardless. Actually, let me say three things. There's three things that people pay for regardless of what's going on in the economy. They can pay for food, they're going to pay for gasoline, and they're going to pay for someplace to store all their crap. And that's, <laughs> that's a storage unit. So, you know, if you get kicked out of your house because you can't afford the payment, you're in an apartment, you're storing your stuff in, in a storage bin. And look, we, you know, Americans, you know, we like our stuff and people have storage units. And if you don't pay the bill, you lose all your stuff. So people will pay that bill regardless of what's going on. So in the real estate space, um, that's one of our favorite holdings. Okay. And I'm just going to ask the TLT question again, because it's yeah. been so uh, yeah. frequent here. Uh, are you holding, adding, selling here? Um, holding right now. Now we have a model that we run called a platinum model, which is for our high net worth uh, family offices, those type of things. And we've actually been uh, writing out of the money puts on TLT at much lower levels and getting paid because there's so much volatility. Um, we were writing some options here over the last couple of days, getting paid three, four, five bucks for them. So um uh, we're doing that and that model, the the uh, kind of our standard so, equity. So, so, sorry to interrupt, but just for the people watching who don't understand what writing a put means, it's using options. But the thing to take away from it is you write a put when you expect the price to go up. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, in this case, you know, what I'm doing is I'm writing a put, which is paying me right now. Um, say, say I get paid, you know, the let's just use some simple numbers on TLT. Let's say TLT is at 114. And I write a, a 113 put and I get paid a dollar uh, for it. So I get paid today a dollar for that put. And if TLT falls to 113 or below it, whoever owned TLT on that other side of that contract can put their TLT position to me. Now, I'm happy to buy it at 113, but I get it at 113 plus a dollar. So you know, that just kind of gives some income to portfolios right now and lets me buy stuff at a lower level if it gets there, um, you know, which may or may not happen because I'm writing these puts actually below into four standard deviation territory. 
Right, but you're even happier if we're in Ford's standard deviation territory, the yeah. TLT sky, you know, moves back up from here. So you've been paid to write the put and your underlying positions in TLT are doing great. Exactly, because then I just keep the cash and I don't exactly. know, I just go from there. You, you get so, the appreciation and the cash. It's a nice exactly. deal. Can't, can't beat that. But in our other portfolios, our equity models and our ETF models, no, we're not adding just yet. We are, are, are lining up to add to that position. Now we have several different positions. You know, when we're talking about our bond portfolio, we have a position in TLT, but we also own, uh, you know, some position in shorter bonds, uh, also floaters uh, of, right, of, of floating rate treasuries, et cetera. So we have a lot of stuff stacked up on the real short end of the curve as well. And what we'll do is, is shift that short end of the curve to, L, to TLT. So we'll increase our TLT position size by reducing our short end, increasing that duration in our bond portfolio and we'll do that. What we're looking for is we're looking for, and we're getting close, but a lot of our metrics, uh, our, our longer-term MACD uh, signals, our longer-term RSI signals, et cetera, they're not on buy signals yet. So we're looking for those to give us buy signals, CTLT base here a little bit, and give us a little bit of a positive upswing. We'll have plenty of time to start building that position and adding to it as, as rates start to come down. So we're not in a hurry. We're just kind of biding our time. And, uh, you know, gonna, we're just going to let the position come to us. All right, great. Um, all right, well, look, in, in wrapping up here, I want to just introduce a concept here that we can hopefully explore in future videos, Lance. And I'm springing this on you, so folks know that Lance hasn't even heard this from me yet. Um, but, you know, we spend an awful lot of time on this program, uh, and I do on Wealthdown with the guests that I interview, you know, every day during the week, is you know, warning people um, about the potential for, you know, these unsustainable trends that we talk about in the macro and the macro side of things really beginning to kind of materialize in force, right? So it's, it's, it's fairly, you know, called, we're, we're, we're on the bearish side, at least we're on the skeptical side of sure. the status quo, right? And um, I think because I cover that content, the type of content so frequently, People call me a perma bear or think that I like to be talking about these negative things. Yeah, you're raising your hand, Lance. I, I've heard you call me that before. No, no, um, no, no. I'm not calling. No, people call me perma. I know they call you the time. same thing too. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I've been a perma bear forever, right? So, yeah. Okay, but where I'm going with this is is I think we would much rather talk about the great opportunities out there to invest in, right? Um, we're just calling it as we see it, and we happen to be in the place of the macro timeline where calling it as we see it, say, hey, we still think things are pretty overvalued here. We still think there's a lot of structural instability that could bite us here. So it's a time where we're, we're kind of warning for caution. Now, I'm really looking forward to the time where either fundamentals increase in the economy or, you know, we have prices correct down to a point where there's true value to be had and more the conversation could be more about, hey, we think there's some deep value here you should look at, right? So I just want to share this one uh, tweet that it was brought to my attention there, one, one chart. Um, uh, it, it's talking about the NASDAQ uh, biotech sector. And it, it says that, uh, I'm just going to read it here. An unprecedented number of biotech firms are underwater right now. More than 20% of the NASDAQ biotechnology indexes, uh, 370 members are trading for less than cash. There's never been anything like this in the data going back to 2022. The companies have about $20 billion worth of cash, but are worth only $11 billion. 
So um, Lance, I don't, I, I haven't spent the time to really dig under this initial tweet, um, but it catches my attention, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, you've got this sector that's basically selling for almost 50% less than just the cash balances on these companies. I don't know if this is, you know, there may be some extenuating factors here that totally justify no. that discount, who knows? But, but to me, that's sort of an example of like, hey, you know, as prices begin to come down like this, as sectors begin to get wiped out, you may actually be able to, to really get your hands on some long-term great value at great prices. So anyways, I just want to sort of note that to say that I, I'm looking forward to the time, Lance, where we can spend a fair amount of these conversations kind of sharing where we're finding deep yeah. value in the markets. And we're not finding it lots of places yet, but this might be one to dig into. No, absolutely. Look, and, and what you're talking about is exactly what Elon Musk and Kathy Wood were talking about this past week uh, in, in terms of passive investing. And, you know, they said like the problem with passive investing is that it covers up these opportunities. The reason that you have going on what you have happening in the biotech index right now is there's a lot of great companies in there that are unfairly beaten up. And it's not just the biotech index, it's across the market, right? There are some really good companies that have been really taken out to the woodshed. And it's not because there's something wrong with those companies, it's because of individuals dumping ETFs and, and selling ETFs. And again, we, we talked about the whole passive indexing effect across the whole market. So you know, look, Kathy Wood's uh, ARK ETF is an example where I'm, I'm not picking on her. It's just she's a great example for one area of the market. And, and so if she hears the interview, I'm not picking on you. You know, I, I think you're great. But, uh, you know, the point is that if, it's, you know, she's had a lot of redemptions. And so when people start redeeming that ARK ETF, it starts to sell Teladoc and Zoom and Peloton and Tesla and, you know, all these other companies that she owns. She's got to sell those because they're redeeming that ETF. And so multiply that out there by all the ETFs. We have thousands upon thousands of ETFs now in the market. They all own the same shares. Uh, we've talked about before on the show, you know, 333 some odd companies all own Apple, right? So, you know, it, you're getting these diversions from fair value caused by the pressure both up and down. Uh, of this ETF buying or selling frenzy that we have going on. And again, so this is going to, and this is why, you know, when we're picking stocks for our equity, port, we, have, we run an ETF portfolio also, but in our equity portfolio, we're having to really dig through there and look for things that have been what we feel like are unfairly beaten down, you know, or, or near lows that we think can hold. And then we ease into them just a little bit at a time and, and try to allow that position to mature so we can add to it over time. And, and, and that's, the, you know, that's the challenging part because you got to be patient. And the problem is in this market is that nobody has patience anymore. It's like, you know, if I buy it today and it doesn't go up, I got to sell it. And that's not the way investing works. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And so it's the ADD market, right? That's what we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> exactly. um, all right. Well, look, for the folks that uh, ping me in the comments and say, hey, Adam, why are you worried about keeping these things, you know, from going too long, we want you and Lance to go to two hours, three hours. No, no. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but, but you got your fill today. We did run over as usual. Um, but, uh, you know, Lance has made, I think, it's several points throughout this conversation. Um, you know, I think did a great job of emphasizing the point of, um, look, don't let your emotions control you. Put together a plan. Um, if you want to talk to an advisor who gets the type of concepts that we've been talking about here, if you want to talk to Lance's firm specifically, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the form there. We'll connect you with them. 
Um, real quickly too, um, I've been getting a lot of people from these videos um, beginning to start following me on Twitter. Uh, if you haven't yet, you want to feel free to do so. My Twitter handle is at Menlo Bear. Um, that's where I'm posting updates throughout the day of you know interesting data I find like that uh, tweet I just talked about with the biotech stocks. Um, so if you kind of want to get commentary throughout the day, uh, that's a fun way to do it if you don't want to wait just for our next video to come out. Um, Lance, as always, buddy, it's been great talking with you. Have yourself a great weekend. Recharge your batteries. Something tells me that next week is going to be uh, keeping you pretty busy too. But whatever does happen, we'll be tracking it here together on this program. Thanks again for joining, Lance. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.